Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we're rewinding back to episode 502, originally published September 1st, 2010. And uh, this was called Bugging In versus Bugging Out, Answering with Logic. And what spurred this on for me was, one, I got a lot of questions about this. Um, and 2010, forums were still a really big thing. Like Forums are not nowhere near as active as I think they used to be, even our own. Um, the rise of Facebook and other social media platforms has really pulled people away from forums. But forums were still pretty big in 2010. And this was one of the most hotly debated forum topics. And it went from everything from well-reasoned and, and thought-out debates to, well, you're an idiot, you don't know anything, and I'm bugging out because the, the, the NF, you know, the, uh, the New World Order is coming, and you don't, you know, all that kind of crap. And what got me was not so much the varied opinions and the varied reasons for the opinions, the fact that either side was lockstep in this is what you do. You bug in. And they made a case for bugging in. You bug out, and they made a case for bugging out. And by now, I had met Stephen Harris. I mean, that's how, how long Stephen Harris has been around with the TSP community. And Stephen Harris was a bug-in guy. Why would I leave? I remember very clearly the first time I brought this up with him. I think he was on the air with me, you know. Why would I leave? All my stuff's here. I got this, and I got that, and I got this, and I got that. And I'm like, well, Steve, a forest fire is about to burn your house to the ground. Oh, Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I gotta leave now. So, oh, wait a minute. There are things that happen that make us leave. And what I've been teaching, and I think I, the first time I really went into this topic was sub 100s as far as episode numbers. But it, it, it comes down to this. In any given scenario, you take the action that will most likely result in you surviving. So, If there's rioting in the streets and you live away from the streets, in air quotes, where it's likely that no one's coming to your house, and if they did, you've got a very defensible position, you don't bug out. You stay put and you wait for all the shit to settle down. If the problem is we're having a, an epidemic of a highly lethal contagion and you're isolated enough that you're probably not going to be exposed where you are, you bug in. Because that's the smart thing to do. And if you have all the stuff that you need, you stay put and you say, hey, we're on quarantine basically, no one's allowed here. And you wait out the situation. If there is a giant hurricane coming towards you like Harvey and a system in place that's going to cause it to stall out and rain like, he, like, like Noah's coming back for four or five days in a row, and you live in a low-lying area, and you have advanced knowledge of this, you get the hell out. See? Because your odds of surviving are higher if you leave. If there's massive fire heading in your direction, and the fire department's like, hey guys, um, we're screwed. We do not have containment. This is coming. Get out. You get out because... I don't know if you've checked this out or not, but when you burn in fire, you die. And even if you don't, it hurts really bad and it sucks. And this whole episode was about having the wherewithal to have the logic to say, I don't have a position. I don't have a position on which one's better because I don't have a situation to give you the answer with. I don't know what the next emergency or disaster I'm going to encounter is. I don't know if it's going to be, hey, while I was gone, my house burned down. So I don't have a house. So, gee, I'm bugging out somewhere. I don't know what that situation is going to be. So I, I have not taken up this position yet because I have no grounds on which to make this decision. And while this episode will stick to this particular decision, I think what's important to understand is there's so many things in life that follow this same pattern. 
you should only do this, or you should only do that, or you should never do this, or you should never do that. How about college? Every Everybody should go to college. Well, no. Are you stupid? Because if you're stupid, you probably shouldn't go to college, because you're not going to get through it. You know, are you really gifted in some sort of a trade and you have like a predisposition to be good at it and you'd be better off going to a trade school or that's what you really, you really love and what you really like to do, then you probably shouldn't go to college. Do you want to be a doctor and do you have the knowledge and, and, and the intelligence and the wherewithal and everything else and the aptitude to be a good doctor? Well, you should probably go to college. Even if you end up changing your mind, you get out of high school, that's you. That's the path that you take because every year you don't take it, you've lost a year, and you can do something else with that aptitude if you get through your first four years of college and decide medical school's not for you. You know, and, and you don't have to be the doctor, to, like only doctors and lawyers are going to college. I'm not saying that, but you know, engineering, STEM degrees, things like that. Like, why are you going to college? If you're going only because everybody's supposed to, well, what are you going to do? So without knowledge of what you're going to do with your life, without some direction, and without some understanding of budgeting and time to repayment, and you, well, what you, when you have this degree in bitterness studies and you spent $80,000 for it, what's your ROI on it? Without that knowledge, you can't make the decision to go or not to go. It's a very basic thing. Well, Jack's against debt, so I'm sure he's against leasing vehicles. Why does he have a leased vehicle? Because it made more financial sense for us. Because when I took all the numbers and I looked at all the different options to make sure that my wife was taking care of our grandkids in a brand new vehicle that I knew was not going to have any problems and leave her side, stranded on the side of the road, and I put all the numbers in an Excel spreadsheet, I came to the financial conclusion that I would have to be an effing idiot to spend $40,000 on a forerunner when we can drive it for $300 a month. I just traded it and get another one. Will we do that for the rest of our lives? No, because our lives will change at some point in the amount of driving we're doing and why we're doing and what we're doing. And then we will change and adapt to that scenario. Technology will change. What's available will change. But we're not going to make the decision like you, you never hear me, even though I'm an advocate of leasing, say you should lease your vehicle. Well, how much money do you have? What's your credit like? What are you leasing? How much do you drive? What kind of vehicle are we talking about? Will a used vehicle work for you? I mean, there's a lot of scenarios where you're better off buying a, a two- or three-year-old vehicle for cash. It all depends. It always depends. And, and that's how this scenario concept has to be approached. You know, the, the old, the, what, the, what didn't make the cut, I had an episode on choosing between the 22 rifle and the shotguns for survival needs. Well, if you could only pick one, then you have to make that decision. But in the end, what's better, a twenty-two or a shotgun? What are you doing? What time of year is it? I mean, if you're squirrel hunting early in the season and there's leaves on all the trees and you can't see very far in the forest and you're, you're still hunting and sitting for squirrels and your furthest shot's going to be about 20 yards and you're going to be taking running shots at them, jumping branch to branch in those short distances, well, clearly a shotgun's a better tool. Later in the season, the leaves fall off. You can see 100 yards in the timber. You're going to be sitting up against an oak tree, being quiet, waiting for a blister squirrel to come out. You're going to get shots 50, 60 yards. A scope 22 is a better tool. It's situational. That's how you approach bugging in and bugging out. It's not bugging in's better, bugging out's better. It's what is the situation. And with that, let's go ahead and rewind ourselves back. September 1st, 2010, episode 502 Bugging in versus bugging out, answering with logic. And remember, while our Rewind shows do not have commercial content, you can help support the Survival Podcast very easily just by doing your online shopping. Where? tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Um, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show now. Um, I, You know, I really think we need to think with logic, and I want to do something to drive the point home. I get emails every day from people that are what some politician did or what some citizen supposedly did that was wonderful or terrible or something that's going through the Senate and it's a bill that's going to be passed and the whole world will end and you research it and it's not what it seems. I got one such email that has nothing to do with politics, but I want to use it to kind of wake you up 
the concept of logic versus emotion. It starts out and there's this huge long letter, you know, and it's all these things about Iraq being mentioned in the Bible and, you know, no other nation except Israel has more history and prophecy associated with it than other than Iraq and uh, there's something to think about. I'm going to read this part of this email to you and uh, I want you to go ahead and accept it as fact even though it's not when I first read it to you. Since America is typically represented by an eagle, Saddam should have read up on his Muslim passages. The following is a verse from the Koran, the Islamic Bible. Koran. For it is written that the son of Arabia would awaken a fearsome eagle. The wrath of the eagle would be felt throughout the lands of Allah and lo, while some of the people trembled in despair, still more rejoiced. For the wrath of the eagle cleansed the lands of Allah, and there was peace. Note the verse number. Hmm, that's what the email says. And what is the verse number? Koran 9, colon 11. So, in the Koran 9, 11 passage, it prophesies that a great eagle would come to the land and cleanse the land of Allah and there would be peace. And right now, if you believe the news media, we're pulling all of our people out and there's peace in Iraq. And a dictator is gone. And isn't there a part of you that would like to believe this? Here's the problem. There is no such verse in the Quran. Not in, you know, 9-11, not anywhere. It doesn't exist. It's completely fact, uh, fictitious. And when you read it, if you read it with logic, the first thing you do is you feel skeptical. You say, this doesn't... And of course it says at the bottom, send this to 13 people in the next 15 minutes. Go! <laughs> do not break this chain. Come on. Right? Th that should alert you. It's written in very big font with different colors, like some 8th grader did it. And I, you know, I, you should... You should look at this and go, this doesn't seem to add up. So, you know, I searched for um, Quran Prophecy 9-11, immediately found Snopes and found out the entire thing is a complete hoax. It's not even a play on it. It's not even like a stretch. It's just a lie. And it's important that we don't lie to ourselves. And you think, what does this have to do with bugging in or bugging out? But there's so many people out there that have these little, what I call, fantasies in their head that if the if the big one comes... And, you know, the stormtroopers march or whatever that fantasy is that they're going to run up into the hills and they're going to wage a guerrilla for, they're going to be a freedom fighter or whatever other nonsense is in their head. And they're lying to themselves because they're thinking with emotion, not logic. Then we don't even have to be in the fantasy world. We have a propensity for a few different things to occur to people in crisis situations. One is called normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is the, you always see this in like, like movies, action adventure movies and all, where like the whole house is falling down and the little old lady's sitting in her chair just knitting away and like, Grandma, we gotta go. Everything's fine, right? And, and there's different versions of that throughout all kinds of movies. And it's the one that makes you want to scream at the screen. You're like, go get up. What the hell is, grab her, yank her, knock granny out, throw her in a box, get her out of there. You know? Don't, don't, you don't have time. Go, go, go. Well, normalcy bias is real, and it doesn't always get you while there's flames around you. A lot of times it gets you in advance of the disaster. Oh, we'll be okay. Well, the hurricane's coming. Yeah, but there's been hurricanes here before. Well, they're saying the entire island we live on is going to be flooded under four feet of salt water. Then we need to get the hell out of here. No, it'll be fine. So normalcy bias is one of the things that happens. And then the other thing is the extreme opposite, panic, where we got to get out of here. Well, where will we go? You know, some other questions that we're going to ask here in just a second. And emotion overrides logic. Maybe the threat is bad, but maybe you are safer at home. So in either instance, whether it's a normalcy bias issue or whether it's an emotional issue, when we let emotion, whether it's positive emotion or negative emotion, whether it's anger, whether it's attachment, if we let emotion drive our decisions, we end up making very, very poor decisions. Or if we make the right decision, we get lucky. Now, I'm all about having some luck. I like having some luck in my life. And I have to tell you, there's been some things that have gone on in my life where I've gone, you know what, I was really lucky for things to work out this way. And I feel good about that, and I feel blessed when I have that luck in my life. And when it happens, great. 
But when it comes down to keeping my ass alive and to keep my family alive and keep my family protected, the last thing that I want to rely on is that my luck will continue. If my luck was that good, I would play the lottery and I would already own, you know, a, a couple million acres somewhere out west and I'd be broadcasting from, you know, the, the mountains of Idaho in the summertime in some tropical paradise, uh, you know, in the winter. But, um, I'm not there, right? I'm here in Arlington living in a normal home just like all of you out there to listen to me because my luck's not going to make that happen for me. Well, when it comes down to a disaster, your luck's not going to make that happen for you either. So we have to make logical decisions. And the best way I know of, and there may be other ways, the best way I know of to put the mind into a logical path of progression is to start asking oneself questions and demanding answers and demanding clear, coherent answers. And this is something that some people do naturally, and I think the reason I came up with these questions for this is because I do it naturally. Uh, in the Army, I was a mechanic, and I worked on big diesel trucks, the really, really big stuff. And you would think, well, you know, what's a mechanic's knowledge worth if you stop being a mechanic, if you do things other than being, what is my mechanics knowledge worth when I'm working on some kind of computer program or something like that, or I'm laying out a disaster plan? Well, the, the biggest skill that a mechanic learns is called troubleshooting. And troubleshooting, I think, is something that everybody should begin to teach themselves. Troubleshooting is a logical progression of questions. So if I have a person that brings a vehicle to me, And they say, here's what it's doing wrong. Whatever, it doesn't start, it, it, it misses, it wobbles, it shakes, it doesn't break well, whatever it is. If I've seen the problem before, I might know immediately what the problem is. But if I've never seen this problem before, the Army gives me a thing called a technical manual. And I look up the problem. And there's a troubleshooting procedure. And it's basically, does this work or does that work? Yes or no? And well, here you go. And eventually you get to a point where you answer the question, with a failure, and they go, okay, well, here's your problem. This is what you do. To, this is the action you take. And you don't need a technical manual to do that if you have a logical mind. You start to analyze everything that way. And as I came out of the military, I realized that in every job that I ever had, and in some places this was well-received, in some places it was seen as a pain in the ass, I would look at every problem and go, well, how can we improve the solution here? And you can imagine the type of places where it wasn't seen as an advantage. Um, most cookie cutter type jobs you know my first couple entry-level positions uh working in warehouses and, and whatnot when i first moved to texas before i got into telecommunications when i got into telecommunications it was a godsend because it was all about troubleshooting so what i've tried to do is take that troubleshooting logic and apply it to do we bug in or do we bug out so my first question is which choice gives the best chance of survival for the scenario at hand And that really is the only question. It really is. But the problem with it is we need the other 11 questions to support it because it ain't as easy to answer as you think. There are times when it is glaringly obvious. If you were sitting on Galveston Island a couple weeks before Hurricane, or a couple days before Hurricane Ike was due to make landfall, and all the projections were towards you, And it was stated that the, 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 you know, emergency evacuation people were stating that if you stayed there, odds are you were going to die. I mean, that's how bad the warnings were. If you, any, we see no way that anybody's going to be able to survive on the island when this thing hits. Your choice was get out. It didn't even matter what the other questions and, and, and uh, what the other, you know, what anything else was. It didn't matter if you had no place to go, no plans, no preps, no anything. Obviously, you need to extract yourself from that situation. If I was sitting here right now and my emergency scanner went off, rant, 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 this is the emergency broadcasting system, there is currently a credible threat of a nuclear device in Fort Worth, Texas. Everybody within an 18-mile radius of Fort Worth, Texas should evacuate now. Then I get my ass up and I leave. I, I set up my rendezvous with my wife. We grab, we get, we go. Dogs, cats, out, headed for Arkansas. Right? Or wherever else. It wouldn't matter if I didn't have a place prepared. We're out. Because I'm in an 18-mile radius of Fort Worth. And I don't want to be irradiated and wiped out. And that would be a credible threat. So when it is to that extreme, the answer is simple. 
There are so many layers of gray, though, that come into this. There's riots. Okay. Are they in your area? No. Are they spreading? Yeah. Does it look like they're going to be contained? I don't know. If when I leave, I have to go through the area of riots to get out, if I'm basically surrounded and I don't have an evac path that doesn't take me through them, I may be much better off staying put. Why and then why are the riots there? It would be what I would have to ask in that scenario. You know, why are there riots? Are there riots because of a court case? Is it localized? If it's localized, well, hell. Sooner or later, the, the, you know, the, the jackboots are going to come in, start firing tear gas and busting heads, put this thing back together. If my neighborhood's okay, I should probably stay put, be extra vigilant, not go anywhere, hunker down and wait this thing out. If it's riots all across America, and cities are beginning to burn from coast to coast because of some major calamity, I probably need to get out. Maybe. Still, it depends on where I am in relation to the city and the rioting and what's going on. So that's why we go in to the other questions. And they're always situationally dependent. I think that's one of the biggest things that we need to understand is that no matter what your answer to the questions are, When it comes down to it, the individual disaster makes a large part of the decision for you. You know, is it a hurricane, a forest fire, uh, a pandemic, what have you? So the next question is, well, how well are, how well are you prepared to bug in? If you're sitting on three to six months worth of food, medical supplies, uh, you have a good, you know, cash reserve so nobody's going to come knocking on your house throwing you out of it, uh, so you can pay your bills. If, um, you have a nice garden in the backyard, if you have good security, um, if everything you can possibly do has been done in your location, you have all the food, water, and comfort items you can amass, and you have a reasonable probability of being able to protect and defend your home in anything other than, you know, you're living on an island and a hurricane's coming or something to that effect, it probably makes a lot of sense to bug in. It probably makes a tremendous amount of sense to bug in. Now, let's say you're new to this. You're brand new to this emergency planning survival stuff, and you're kind of a, you're a grasshopper, let's say. You know, you really aren't prepared at all. You're just starting to listen to shows like this and get involved with forums. Maybe you have a few extra cans of soup or whatnot put away and so a basic blackout kit set up, you know, flashlights, batteries, uh, radio, candles, that type of thing. So you're prepared the way that most people are sort of prepared anyway, maybe a little bit better, and it's going to be a long-term disaster. Well, when you're not prepared, you might be able to have a much better chance of procuring the things you're going to need to survive, like food and water, elsewhere. Again, this is situationally dependent. It has a lot to do with the other questions. But it does make a difference whether you should bug in or out. How well prepared are you? If you're of the mindset that... I am going to be somewhat prepared here and extremely prepared at my bug out location and you have a prepared area with more stuff, maybe you would go there because it's more suited for survival. More of your preps exist outside of your home. I do that, but not to an extreme. We can hunker down here for 60 days easy, simple, you know, no worries at all. But my propensity is to put the bulk of my preps cached strategically at a prepared location that I believe is safer in a long-term disaster scenario. Something that's going to go more than 60 days as far as I'm concerned, I want, because I have a place set up, I want the ability to get out, and I want to not have to take too much with me to go there. Eventually we're going to live there, and my entire focus will switch. We'll be living in what now is our bug out location full time. My propensity to bug in will go up extremely in that scenario. Um, the next thing is, what exactly are you prepared for? What exactly are you prepared for? And, you know, that comes down to things like, what is your view on defense? Are you well armed? Do you have ammunition and guns? Do you have the wherewithal to use them? If the answer to those questions are yes, you may stay put, in that local expanding riot? If your answer is yes, but I really, really have a problem with it. I really don't ever want to take another human being's life. And hopefully everybody feels that way. But if you have that extreme feeling, well, maybe you bug out to avoid the confrontation. 
if it's possible. Maybe you're a person that's a pacifist. You don't ever want to kill anybody else. Not only don't want to, you don't have the capability. And there's a lot of people that would, would put down a person like that. I admire a person like that. It's not me. You come take my stuff, you're getting it, you know, you get maybe you get a warning shot, but you're going to get a Dirt Nap Society membership if you break into my home during a disaster or not during a disaster. If you come in my home and threaten my family, you get to go sleep in the earth for the rest of existence as far as the physical manifestation of your body is concerned. You're done. But other people don't feel that way. There are people that are survivalist-minded that don't believe in owning guns. Well, in a, if you've made that choice, I don't endorse it, but I understand it, and you're a free person, but then if we're getting into one of these hostile situations, you need to get to as much safety as you can get. Have you prepared in a standpoint of food? That's great, but if it's a forest fire, and it's, it's coming hard and fast, and you've been given an evacuation order, your food won't do you any good when both you and it are incinerated. So you have to look at what preps you have, what are you prepared for, what can you stand off, what can you hold off, and what can you not hold off as part of your decision-making process. The next is, have evacuation orders been given? I'm going to tell you that it's my belief that if evacuation orders are given in your area, 99.999% of the time, you should get your ass up and go. This is one of the most dangerous things that you can do to yourself to ignore an evacuation order. Let me explain a couple, just a couple of the reasons why that's the case. Letting the conspiracy theories go off into oblivion where most of them, not all of them, but most of them belong. The government is not here to force you to evacuate so that they can do something malicious to you. Right? That's not the purpose of it. In fact, government agencies hold off as long as they can and try to avoid evacuation orders. It is a disaster when they have to give an evacuation order. They hate to give an evacuation order. They don't want to give an evacuation order. They know that every time they give one and people evacuate and they didn't really need to, it's like crying wolf, even though they're doing their best, and that people are likely to then ignore an evacuation order when it's important. So they're very heavy about not doing this, especially at the local, city, county level, because in some cases the economic impact is so severe. So when you hear, get out, it generally means we really think you need to get out before your ass ends up dead. That's what it means. So if you stay and you die, you had an opportunity to not die. The, the other side of this is, let's say there's a disaster, it comes, and you do hole up and you do make it through and everybody's alive, but you need assistance. When emergency responders begin to go into the disaster area, and render assistance to people left behind, they set a priority. One of those priorities is, is this area part of a mandatory evacuation or not? Every area that was outside of the, the, the disaster, you know, edict, get out, the evacuation order, that was actually impacted, and there's people there that weren't mandatorily evacuated that need out, they get priority over you. Responders go there first, because they know that there's more people there, because those people weren't told to get out. You are last in line for help. The next reason is, if the disaster's bad enough, and everything's in the way, and somehow you get a satellite phone to work or whatever, and get through to 911, you can yell and scream all you want. It may be physically impossible for anybody to get to you for a very long period of time. It is a bad idea to ignore evacuation orders most of the time. Unless you don't have any place to go and everybody's trying to evacuate and you can't get out. And then you better think really hard about what you're going to do to try to make it through. And I almost can't tell you when you should not evacuate. I, I almost can't. I, in fact, I can't. I would tell you that it would have to be something that situationally occurred and you would know it. And you're in a really bad way if that happens. If you have to ever stay in a place where it's been ordered to evacuate, you really need to... Uh, do a little praying, probably. I mean, that's that's part of getting through it, I think, at that point. The next one is, what is the nature and probable duration of the threat? What is the, and, and don't worry about writing these down if you're like at work or whatever. You can go to the show notes and you can cut and paste this right out of the show notes and drop it into a document or whatever if you want them. Um, 
But what is the nature and probable duration of the threat? What, what is the nature of the threat? So how, what, what's happening? Is it a hurricane? Is it a pandemic? The nature of those two threats is entirely different. A hurricane is on a storm track. It's going to go to a certain place, you know, and it's going to go through there and it's going to pass. It's a relatively short-term situation as far as its acute portion. Of course, it leaves behind aftermath, which is sometimes far more dangerous than the storm. A pandemic is invisible. You can walk outside to water your grass and your neighbor sneezes across the fence and it's airborne. And it's not a probable way to pick up the contamination, but it could happen. You could go to the store and buy something and, and somebody touched it and they left behind the virus and it ends up in your system. It doesn't care how well prepared you are. If it's a lethal disease, it can kill you. It lasts a lot longer in duration than a hurricane, even than a hurricane's aftermath. Because it has a long acute time, a long period of time where it's infecting people and people are dying and very, very ill, and then it has aftermath that it could possibly create. When you're making a decision to stay or go, that is so critical into whether you stay or whether you go. If we were dealing with uh, really bad storms here in North Texas, which is no stretch, it happens all the time, I'm not going to bug out for that. They're going to come and they're going to go. And if I bugged out every time that we were likely to see hurricane or not hurricanes here, but, but tornadoes as part of our thunderstorms, I would just leave in April, like April 1st, right? And I would just come back about right now. And I would still have risks associated with some of the winter months and things like that. But that period of time, this, this month, this year was very, very mild. But we've had years where from like April through July, every week, there are tornado warnings. Not watches, warnings. There's tornado touchdowns somewhere around here. Part of the reason I want to get the hell out of here and up in the mountains where they're less common. But they're short-term duration, and the best thing you can do is hunker down, not be out driving around on the street like my wife did one year when I wanted to knock her ass out for what she did. She basically drove around a, 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 a an F2 tornado that, that tore apart Arlington, ripped the Edna building apart. She kind of it was on an angle, and she drove caddy corner around it without knowing it because she wouldn't stay put and wanted to get home. But, you know, that's obviously something I would hunker down for. A pandemic is going to be a, long, a real one, not this nonsensical crap we had with the swine flu, but a real pandemic, uh, a real lethal strain of flu. Well, we're much safer in Arkansas. So because of the duration and, and, and um, the nature of that threat, we would extract to an area where we're far more isolated, far less likely to be infected, and be more uh, able to wait it out. So that is a huge thing to look at. The next one is, will staying put change anything as far as saving your home? Some people say that. Well, I want to stay put and make sure nothing happens to my house. Okay, you're on the Florida coastline and you're about to take a direct hit from a Category 4 hurricane. What do you think you're going to do? Go upstairs in the attic and hold the roof on with your feet? You know? You're going to put some monkey bars in there and hang upside down and grab onto the floor and hold the attic down? You're not going to save your house in that scenario. If you're sitting in California during wildfire season and you're on an uphill grade of, of timber and the fire's coming down the other hill slowly... When it hits the bottom of that valley and it starts coming up the other side, it's going to come as a literal firestorm. If you and all your neighbors get together and turn your garden hoses on and collectively spray the place at the same time, you might as well pee into it. You ain't going to stop it. Your house is going to get torched. You need to get the hell out. Now, if it's rioting and you are willing to take the necessary action, you may be able to save your home. You may be able to prevent it from being looted. You know, but if you're worried about after hurricane looting, get, come on now. You, you know, once it's torn apart and everything's ruined and destroyed inside it, are you really worried about it being looted? Thinking about your preps. How valuable are your food preps if they're incinerated by a forest fire? So we really need to look at Will staying make a difference if, we, if we're concerned with protecting our home? This is key. And when you think about it right now, it seems very simple. But when you've lived in a place and it is your home, and you do love your home, and most people do love their homes, and it's their abode, it's their sanctuary, 
and you're thinking about leaving it, and you know something's going to happen to it, then emotion takes over in that instant. And it's not as easy as you might think it would be. That's why you need to be mentally prepared to understand that your house, your home, even if you've turned it into a homestead, still amounts to dirt underneath it, sticks, bricks, and tile, and, 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 and shingle, and every bit of it can be replaced, but you cannot be replaced. So it's noble to think, I'm going to defend my home. If it, if, it can, if it will have an effect, if you have the tools and the means and the nature of the threat is such that you can, it may be part of staying put. But when you get to a point where you realize that you staying isn't going to change what's going to happen, then you have a propensity more to evacuate based if the nature of the threat dictates that. The next is, where will you go and how the hell are you going to get there? I think a lot of people have this, still have this mindset. I still see it. I got a bunch of camping gear. I'm going to go up in a national forest. Could be a great idea. Could be a terrible idea. What's the nature of the threat? Comes back to that. You know, if it's a national disaster, cities are burning from coast to coast. The electrical grid went down due to a solar storm. The lethal flu is killing 50% of those infected. People are rioting and dying in the streets. The dead are. I mean. You don't think that everybody and their mother that can rob a Walmart and get out of Dodge is going to do the same thing? It may be, and, and you don't think that in that less sanitary environment that disease is going to spread far more lethally than it would even in a city with some level of sanitation still in place? Now, it's a regional disaster, and you don't want to end up in a FEMA camp. And you could back off 200 and... 50 miles and find a place to set up and you don't really have the money for a hotel or at least for the duration it's going to be and you can find a campground with showers and everything and you go do that until you can go back in and try to put things back together. It might actually work that way. But it won't work for the end of the world as we know it. So, and it's not ideal. You know, even a small teardrop camper or something like that is more ideal than a tent. So, you know, it, you know, do you have an RV? How are you going to get there, though, is the other part of this. Is everybody else trying to leave at the same time? Do you have evacuation routes planned? I believe wherever you live, you should have three routes planned to each of three different locations. That's nine total ways to get out going somewhere else. And you should have places that you would go, even if they're just you pick a, a city that seems far enough away that maybe you could get a hotel there for a couple days if you don't have a relative to double up with or what have you. And I know that doesn't sound like survivalism, running off to Lubbock and getting a hotel. But survivalism, again, is about keeping your ass alive and keeping your family safe. That's what it's really about. And if the, if the, uh, the, the threat is acute to your area, then all that's all that it takes. That's it. That's all you got to do. Good, good stockpile of cash on hand, some money in the bank. Visa debit or MasterCard debit check card so that you can use it as a, as a ho at the hotel as a credit card because I don't believe in credit cards. Hey, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. You go do it. And if you're not supposed to, if, if evacuation ends up not being necessary, you took an impromptu three-day vacation, big deal, go home, go back to work. I mean, these are simple things, but they're also the things that people in hysteria overlook. And if you don't know where you're going to go at all, if you have no place to go, then staying put starts to look like a better choice. For many people it is. I know so many people that say they would bug out, and my first question is, where are you going to go? And it's amazing how many people don't really have an answer. Oh, we know this place up in the hills. Do you own the land? No. What kind of land is it? Is it private property you're going to sneak onto? No, it's public land. Think some other people might go there? Again, I'm not saying that the plan is bad. I'm just saying the plan is not good enough to cover everything. And there are some scenarios where the plan could turn into a very quick way to get yourself killed, shot, looted, infected with some kind of disease. And have you ever tried it? There are families that could pick up and move out into the woods for three weeks right now and nobody would bat an eye. Maybe the kids would complain a little bit about some mosquito bites, but, I mean, overall, they're ready to do it. And there's families that think they could do it and they've never done a camp trip more than a weekend. And they've never done a cabin trip more than a weekend where you weren't at least, you know, 20 minutes or closer to a convenience store to run and pick up the things that dad and mom forgot to bring. Keep everybody happy. 
You have to really think about where you're going to go, how you're going to get there. The next one is, do you own a bug out location? Or do you have double up plans or no plans at all? So this is kind of an extension of where would you go, but it's a definitive answer to that question. And therefore, we take a look at it a little bit differently. Making the decision for me to bug out in anything that would put us at severe risk in the Arlington area to go to our mountain home in Arkansas is infinitesimally easy. It is the simplest decision we could ever make because we have everything we need in place. Everything is prepared and ready to go. All we have to do is pack up the things that we want to take, take with us. That can be done if we have to in 45 minutes. We've actually drilled it. And go. And we're gone. And once we're there, we are as safe as we could probably be anywhere in this region of the United States of America. So making the decision for me is easy because I have a place. I own it. It's mine. It's my property. I have rights to it. And I'm prepared there. Likewise, uh, uh, you know, I am not big on the whole concept of me and my brother-in-law and two of our buddies are going to go out and buy 30 acres and, and, and make a survival compound on it collectively. Um, I just see so much potential for problem there. Now, me and my, my two buddies and my brother-in-law are going to go in on 30 acres, subdivide the land into, you know, what would be seven and a half, eight acres, eight, you know, seven acres apiece, seven and a half acres apiece, and own our own piece of land, do our own thing on each own piece of land, but know who our neighbors are and kind of work together, maybe set up a pond in the middle of it as collective property or whatever, that I'll be okay with. But you don't have to go to that extreme. If you live in Pennsylvania and your Uncle Wilbur lives out in Kansas, why don't you guys just make an agreement if you're like-minded with If something ever pushes you out of where you're at, come here until we can figure out what to do next. And if anything ever happens at Uncle Wilbur's in Kansas, like, you know, Kansas, that seems pretty safe. Remember the town of Greensburg basically wiped off the map by tornado? So Uncle Wilbur may need to come out and live in Pennsylvania for a while. And that double-up planning, contingency planning within a family is highly effective, and it gives you an answer to where would you go. And it makes a lot of sense for... You take whatever you can as far as preps, but if both of you are prep-minded, take money and buy some of your relatives' preps when you get there from them so you don't seem like a deadbeat. You know, Go out to the store and buy some of your own. Be prepared to be a good house guest in these scenarios. Maybe stockpile a little stuff of yours at his location and his at your location. Certainly, guns and ammo is a good one to do that for because you might just be going out and, you know, There are, there are disasters that do not have to be felt, do not have to seem like disasters or complete disasters. Your house is destroyed. You have insurance. It's going to get rebuilt. You're stuck at Uncle Wilbur's for a while. Go out and go pheasant hunting with Uncle Wilbur. See, that's the thing about preparedness. Done properly, there are times when what seems like a massive disaster just becomes an inconvenience. And there are times when no matter how prepared you are, it's a massive disaster. But it doesn't mean we don't strive to make as many of them inconveniences as we possibly can. The next one is, will you be able to help your community if you stay? I mean, it's a noble thing to say that, you know what, if there's a disaster around here, I'm going to be the guy out helping my neighbors versus the guy out you know, stealing from my neighbor or begging for my neighbor. If FEMA shows up with, with trucks with water on it handing them out, I'm going to help hand it out because I got plenty, you know. And, and I think that's great. And I think a lot of people in our community are those types of people. We want to help. But it's kind of like the earlier question about if you stay, will you be able to actually do anything to protect your property, to keep your house from burning down, to keep your house from being destroyed by uh, a hurricane or a flood or a volcano or whatever, depending on where you live and what the threat is, is there anything you can really do? If it's a type of disaster short in duration, regional in scope, You have a reasonable chance of survival. You're not really acutely threatened. And you want to be part of helping out in the aftermath. It might be a reason to stay. But on the other hand, if the disaster is going to be so severe that you're likely to end up dead before you get the chance to help, you got to take that off the table. If you're a person that's really important to you that you help your community, 
then it's more important that you, you, you stay. And if you're a person that's like, man, I tried to help my community. These people didn't listen to me. I talked to all my neighbors about this. No, but they all think I'm crazy. You might feel like it's time to get out. These are personal decisions. A lot of these questions are not hard in their answers, uh, hard, fast in their answers. The answers change on the situation, on the individual, on a personal level. But you got to keep the emotion out as much, best you can. The next is, what will be the impact of staying or going on your family, and can they handle what you can? I talk to people that are like, oh, I'll just do this. Now you talk to the guy, you know, the guy's like, he's a badass, right? He's an army ranger. Maybe he's, you know, was in the rangers for 10, 12 years and he only got out a few years ago and he's still out doing a hundred pull-ups and push-ups every day and, and running and, and, and he's in great physical shape and he's ready to fight. He's ready to do whatever it takes in, in either scenario, staying put or going. And, you know, he has that mental attitude of, I can get it done. Yeah. And he's married to, you know, some chick that gets her nails done three times a week and they have two small children. Just because he can handle it doesn't mean his family can. His first duty is to take care of that family and to make things as safe and within reason comfortable for them as you possibly can. So in both scenarios, bugging in, bugging out, there are times where that individual could handle it but his family, family cannot. You have to think about those going with you. And I'll tell you another thing about the badass attitude. The I can mountain bike, I can run. I mean, we had, we had people comment on the blog with nonsense like that. You know, I'm a state champion. The one guy wrote it. It was just ridiculous, everything this guy claimed about himself. Even if it's true. Try it with a broken leg. Try it when a piece of that tree in your front yard is in your chest. The, the badass attitude will get you killed quick. Because it, it, it personifies thinking you're superhuman. And it's a very immature attitude. There's a reason the Army likes to recruit kids when they're 17 years old and have them take the oath and be signed up and in basic toward the end of that 17th birthday or just into that 18th year. As soon as that high school diploma is handed to them, they want them buzz cut and doing push-ups. Because it's easy to instill the attitude of being bulletproof to an 18-year-old. It ain't so easy to instill the attitude of being bulletproof into a 40-year-old because a 40-year-old has a little bit more wisdom. And when he has a wife that he loves and kids that he loves and a home that he's built, he also has more to lose in his mind if he dies. And I don't care how old you are or how young you are or how bulletproof you feel and how many repetitions you can do on a bench press with 225 pounds on the bar, that wisdom is something you need to put into your head. Because you're one injury away from being laid completely equal to the 65-year-old man with asthma. One injury will make you not only on his level, he may be in a better shape. to He may be the one dragging your ass with one injury. And it doesn't have to be warfare type injury. It doesn't have to be riding and somebody shoots you. It can be a car wreck that changes that superhuman in you. I knew a guy that, man, it, it hurt me to see this guy, the shape he was, because I knew what he was like before. His name was Kevin. He was a, a son of, of, a, of a lady that I worked for. And uh, he had been in the Navy SEALs. And after he got out of the Navy SEALs, and you know, those guys are tough, man. They're hardcore. They're, they're the best in the world at what they do. And they're an amazing physical conditioning just to get into it, let alone to be a SEAL for a number of years, be part of an active team, and then come home. And when he came home, you know, instead of going into private security or something like that, he wanted to, so he went with his stepfather and started learning to do uh, utility work, and he had a job working for the electrical company. And while he was working on one of those big electrical green box transformers you see in backyards, he didn't want to cut down these people's bushes they planted around. He tried to fit himself in between the bush, and he ended up making contact with his stomach to the electrical transformer. And this guy was, you know, last I saw him, he was in his, his early 30s. And his doctor says his insides are like that of a 90-year-old man with congestive heart failure. He's constantly swollen, you know, with fluid in his body. He's on all kinds of medication. He breathes hard to walk across the room. No amount of exercise is going to make that go away. And I'm not putting down exercise and being in good physical shape. I'm just saying when we rely on it to the extreme, when we think it's going to carry us through anything, we're making a bad choice. And it shouldn't be part of your stay-or-go strategy, right? 
It's not a place for it. And you do have to think about the other people around you. Um, the next question is, well, if I do leave, what can I take with you and what will I have to leave behind? If all my preps are here, I don't have anything cashed anywhere else, and it's going to be a long-term disaster, I start looking really hard at, can I pull off staying behind? Because I can only take so much with me. If I have a great big giant RV that I can pack everything that I have as a prep into and go, it starts looking like a better idea to leave. And most of us are going to be somewhere between those two extremes. But we have to ask that question. What am I going to have to take and what am I going to have to leave behind? And what is the, again, go, all of these ter, ter, turn back to the nature of the threat. How does that relate to the nature of the threat? Troubleshooting is always interlinked with your questions. And the next one is, if you leave, what exactly is waiting for you at your destination? Not just where you're going to go, are you prepared, what have you, but if you go, what's there? Is it a bunch of stuff? Is it a friendly family? Is it an empty piece of forest with a tent? You know, we've kind of talked about this, but we really need to finish up with it. What's waiting for me if I leave? Nothing? Something? You know? We, if you don't answer that in advance, what you end up is basically being completely aimless. And that's going to reduce your odds of survival. Now, again, tying it all back up to the end or the beginning. If the threat is critical and is, is, is imminent and is going to be lethal, then all of it goes out the window. You know, that credible nuclear device. Get out. Category 5 hurricane about to make landfall on your coastal area. Get out. Do whatever you have to, including if you have to because you're totally unprepared, holding up in a shelter somewhere. God, that sucks. God, I don't want that for you. That's why I do this show every day. But if you've let it go that far, if you haven't taken this seriously and you end up in that situation, then that's what you have. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can always get to the point where we can answer the question of what's waiting for us with something good, something positive. Everybody can create for themselves a bug out location. Everybody. Including by using two real relatives that agree to allow each other to come stay at their place. And again, people will say, well, if I live in Chicago and my relative lives in Philadelphia and we're having wide-scale national disasters, then that's not going to work. We both need a place to go to. Yeah, but in 99% of the things that would ever go wrong in Chicago or Philadelphia, the other is going to be sufficient to get out of danger. So let's play the odds here. And if you really want that remote location, then you have to work on that. I did. I made the commitment. I got it done. You know, And you can do that too, but it is more complicated. So whenever we're planning and preparing for disasters, whether it's bugging in, bugging out, having food available, the, the first thing we do is we say, what can I just do now? Can we, you know, if we can knock out an agreement that we can each share each other's location in the event of a disaster with one cheap long-distance phone call that we don't even pay for anymore because of cellular phones, pick the freaking phone up, call Uncle Wilbur in Kansas and get it done if you know he's of the right mindset. Because you can do it. Do what you can do. If you can't set up a big-time bug-out location, but you can buy a few acres of land dirt cheap, bring it, and you have surface water there, and you can set up a small camper, and you can create that bug-out location in a week because you have the ability to do it, and it, if, it, if it fits your lifestyle, you do it. If you can't, you don't. You do something else. Focus on what you can do. But know this. This stuff is not a game. In everybody's life, there comes times where we're threatened. Some of us feel the threat and it passes us by. Some of us are impacted by the threat. Sometimes when we're impacted by the threat, it, it takes our lives. Sometimes it takes our capabilities down a peg. Like my friend Kevin, who electrocuted himself. And sometimes the threat severely alters our lives for all time, but yet we're still here. But everybody feels the threat. Back when the swine flu started, it was a threat that passed us by. But I'll bet, if you were paying attention back then, when we first heard about it, before we got a grip on the fact that it was bullshit, which took about two to three days to figure out it was bullshit, and the government went on with hysteria for two more months, 
the informed knew within two to three days, screw off, don't worry about it, we got other things to prepare for. But I bet you, I bet you when you first heard about it, you know what I bet happened? Right down in the pit of your stomach, it tensed up, and you started thinking, oh crap, this could be a big thing. Are we ready? Are we prepared? Have we done enough? That was a threat. just happens to be one that passed you by. So you need to think about these things. You need to run these mental scenarios. You need to have this logic ingrained into your mind. If you go back and listen, there's been over 500 episodes of the Survival Podcast now. Today is 503. If you go through them, you'll see that almost all of them follow a logical progression. What would we do in X scenario? Or why is this a threat? Or why is this not a threat? Mechanically, pulled apart, broken down into its components, and reassembled back into a podcast. That's the way you have to think to be a survivor. The way you think is so much more important, so much more important than the stuff that you have. There's been people that have been in the middle of disasters that ended up dead, that you go back and you look at the scenario after it was over, they had everything they needed to be able to survive. But they didn't think they didn't they they got into a normalcy bias or over emotional response and because of that they didn't see the tools that we have around us you always have tools tools are not just wrenches and hammers tools are how things fit together how things can be combined where you can go next how you can put something together that doesn't seem to go together those are all tools mental tools and physical tools you're never without tools if you have the right mindset. So make sure that you run mental scenarios. What would I do if? Do a threat assessment. If you live in the center of the country, then the odds that you're going to have to worry about a hurricane, they're not that big, right? You don't do a lot of hurricane prep in Topeka, Kansas. Unless maybe you need to go to one of those special homes, you know, where doctors that don't really... Qualify as normal doctors, talk to you all the time. You know, because you, there's just not a lot of hurricane threat in Topeka, Kansas. If you're in Miami, Florida, and you're preparing for a blizzard, you might also have to go to one of those special little homes, a little sanitarium. But if you're in Miami, then you really need to think about flooding, hurricanes, tropical storms, tornadoes, inner city violence. Topeka, Kansas, yeah, you might want to think about Tornadoes, strong thunderstorms, hail, crushing blizzards in the winter, ice storms. So do a threat assessment and make sure that you run mental scenarios. Okay, if we had a big ice storm coming, it knocked power out for three weeks, what would we do? These are the things that allow you, when the disaster comes, to have already run all of the, the, the scenarios in your head and your mind, without even thinking, will immediately lock on and start over with that logical progression. Okay, this is what we do. You go downstairs, get the generator, bring it upstairs, let's get that outside hooked up. Let's go out and get the propane, extra propane tanks, bring them in while the house is still warm so we can keep running the extra propane or whatever. You know, we had a scenario one time here where the power went out at the house. And without even thinking, without anybody even saying anything, my wife's off grabbing the blackout cat kit, you know, pulling the, the, the little emergency lights out of the wall, going to get the kit. I grab the other one. I'm in the uh, garage pulling out some firewood because it was cold out. It was the winter time. And uh, one of our fire starter logs and throwing that in. Kid goes, grabs the lighter, lights the fire. Uh, we close all the doors and make sure that we keep everything in. Go grab the emergency radio, crank it up, turn on a station. And we're all sitting there and we look at each other and just went, wow, huh, no one said anything. No one said anything to anybody. We just did it. Now, the, the thing was that this was like a, just a routine power outage, and, and we knew that it would probably be back on an hour or two, and we probably didn't even need to light a fire because it wasn't that cold. And you know, But it was just like, this is a drill. We're just going to do it. We're going to see what happens. And we did it, and it worked out. And boy, I felt good about my family at that point. I felt good about the fact that we were mentally prepared. So whether it's staying put or going, Running these mental scenarios and having that programming laid into your mind that if this happens, this is what I do, and if that doesn't work, then this is my fallback plan. That's what keeps you alive, and it's what keeps you somewhat comfortable. There's no reason to be miserable in every disaster. Some disasters, you don't have a choice. You're going to be miserable. 
But a lot of disasters can be nothing, like I said before, mild inconveniences. Living like it's 1800 for a few days won't kill you. And you can actually enjoy it. Play a few board games, what have you. Play some cards. Reconnect with your kids with the computer and the TV off. Not a bad idea to shut that crap off about once a month anyway and just do it as a family thing. But in the end, it's really up to you. And uh, making decisions is all about your personal choice and your individual situation. Hopefully the things that I gave you today allow you to mentally lock down what works best for you, your life, your family, and your situation. I can't tell you what you should and should not do because you run your own life. You control your own life and you know the answers to these questions for you better than I ever could. I can just give you the way to think and the progression forward. And with that thought process, you'll be able to get through just about anything that comes your way. Hey, we all can accept the fact that someday we can be driving to work, hit by a 10-wheeler, and we're gone. Our problems are over at that point. Hopefully we've left behind a legacy that's made to make our family able to go forward. But in most situations, we do wake up breathing tomorrow. And how we think is what allows us to keep not only breathing, but really building something special in our lives. Survivalism is not just about waking up breathing. It's about thriving even when everybody around you is screaming in chaos. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares.